Jesus is asked a question about divorce, and in responding, he lays a framework for a Christian understanding of sexuality. Uh, it is not marriage nor divorce that we're going to be talking about, uh, but a follow-up conversation after this public one that he has with his disciples um, that engages with this concept of singleness. But so that we get the context, I want to read the whole passage together this morning, beginning here in Matthew 19, verse 1. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Let's pray. Father, this topic this morning touches all of our lives at some period or another. Even for those of us who are married this morning, it's very unlikely that our spouse and ourselves will die at the exact same moment. On top of that, Lord, you have called us as a church to be a family, uh, and it is a family where there is not a second-class status for those who are single. And so this message is important to those of us who aren't currently single because it helps us to know how to support and how to love and appreciate those around us who are part of our family. We pray, God, that you would teach us and instruct us. We know, Lord, that our, our minds may be wet cement where you can still form, but there are many things that are solid and that need to be taken down and destroyed before you can rebuild the truth. We give you uh, full access this morning, and we ask that you would do just that conform our understanding to the truth of your design. In Jesus' name, amen. It's worth pointing out that uh, when the Pharisees, who are effectively the conservative religious leaders of Jesus' day, come to ask Jesus this question about divorce, they're not looking for an answer. In fact, it tells us uh, there in verse 3, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him. Okay, uh, Their goal is to trap Jesus. Their goal is to do one of two things. Okay, For starters, uh, the primary way the Old Testament gives to judge a teacher, or more importantly, a false teacher, is in the context of Moses. 
okay? And so basically, they want to know if Jesus stands with Moses, how Jesus reads the book of Deuteronomy. They want to catch him, distancing himself from the Old Testament so they can go, aha, okay? Uh, the other possibility here, uh, like in our day in the church, divorce can often be a controversial issue. And in the first century, uh, two particular interpretations had become popular, and Judaism was basically split. Okay? And so there was one teaching that was very strong and read Deuteronomy chapter 24 that speaks of divorce uh, when it says, uh, if a man divorces his wife uh, because he finds some uncleanness in her, one camp said that uncleanness is clearly adultery, it's clearly sexual immorality. Any other reason would be unbiblical uh, for divorce. The other camp said that uncleanness is much broader. Uh, it involves any problem a husband has with his wife, and so grounds for divorce were liberally available. Now recognize, by asking Jesus to state his claim on this issue, they're getting him to divide his audience on a controversial issue. Those are the goals that they have in mind. And Jesus does something surprising. They want to know, is it lawful? They're thinking in the context of the law of Moses, and Jesus does go to the Old Testament, but not to Deuteronomy. He says, have you not read what was written in the beginning? He goes back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. Uh, in other words, he says you cannot understand divorce until you understand marriage, and you can't understand marriage until you go to the design of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. Okay? And so he lays this out, and they ask a follow-up question, and they go, if that's the case, what God has joined together, let no man cut asunder. If, uh, if adultery is the only cause, then why did Moses permit divorce at all? And he says that it's because of your hardness of hearts. Now let's be clear. The Pharisees who are standing here, it's not merely their hardness of hearts that Jesus is talking about. Moses wasn't thinking, 1,500 years from now, there's going to be some guys with hard hearts, so I'm going to prescribe divorce. When Jesus says your hardness of hearts, he's talking about the collective human problem that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Okay? In fact, we see the very first marriage between Adam and Eve tremendously impacted by the fall. In the first chapter, Adam sees Eve, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, words of intimacy, words of kinship, words of closeness. But after they disobey God, what's Adam's perspective on Eve then? It's the woman, the woman that you gave me, she gave to me and I ate. It's distancing, it's blaming, okay? That problem, Jesus, uh, Jesus says, is real, says that it's true, but he reminds them, but that's not where the beginning is. We still have to understand what marriage is. We still have to understand what marriage is for. We still have to understand its design, okay? But the problem is here is that when Jesus says this and presents a tremendously conservative sexual ethic, again in verse 9, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So he sees any divorce and remarriage apart from sexual immorality as being inherently adulterous. In other words, he says 
he says that sex, the only place that it lives and thrives and is good and is indesigned, is in the context of a permanent and exclusive relationship by covenant that the Bible calls marriage. Okay. But what we really want to focus on this morning is what happens in verse 10. Privately, the disciples pull him aside in verse 10 and say, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Now, I want you to notice right up front, they hear Jesus and they see marriage as being a difficult path. That's their problem. They're saying, if what you've just said is true, if the line is that significant, okay, then maybe it's better not to get married. It's worth pointing that out because generally, if we take singleness and marriage, we think marriage is all positive, it's all blessing, it's the end of the romantic comedy, it's the finish line of our maturity, it's these types of things. But not only are the disciples struck here, you need to understand that they're coming at this issue as Jewish men in the first century. In fact, most commentators believe here when they say, if this is really the case, they're trying to feel out if Jesus is really serious, okay? In other words, and we see this many times in the Gospels, they're saying, is that really what you meant? And here's why, okay? From a Jewish understanding, uh, Jewish men were required to keep the law. And during Jesus' day, that law had been articulated as 613 individual commandments across the Old Testament. And the very first one is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Okay? In other words, there was a religious and a legal requirement for men to get married and have children. Singleness in the Old Testament is relatively non-existent as a, as a state of being. The only single person we find called to be single in the Old Testament is Jeremiah. And he's called to be single as a prophetic embodiment of how hard life is about to get. Okay? Uh, it is not a positive view. And so here, they're coming, and they're basically saying, uh, Jesus, this seriousness here uh, makes obedience very difficult. Because let's just recognize, in fact, uh, many of us have probably thought this through at one point or another. The idea of committing to another person who you've known for months or maybe years for the rest of your life and hitching your wagon permanently and totally, not knowing what's coming, is terrifying. Okay. We've come to a place as a culture where we want the freedom to test drive. And I'm not talking merely sexually, I mean broadly in our relationship. We want some practice before we settle down and sign the papers. We want lots of loopholes and ways out, you know. No-fault divorce, the ability to just walk away from a relationship, is relatively new technology. It's only been around for 150 years. Prior than that, most cultures agreed uh, that divorce was a very small possibility. But we threw open the floodgates. And, you know, if you were to look around the uh, room this morning, you would find that many of us are children with divorced parents. It's become a a much more common thing. But even in even in the days of Peter and John and James, Jesus' disciples, as they're talking with Jesus, 
they recognize the significance, weight, weight of this. And one of the things that really strikes me about Jesus as a teacher is anytime somebody comes to him and says, is that really what you meant? Or says, hey, Jesus, don't you understand how offended people were by what you said? He always doubles down. He doesn't back up and he, go, he doesn't go, look, I, I, I misspoke or let me clarify. He doesn't add caveats or asterisks. He doesn't do any of that. Instead, notice what he says in verse 11. He said to them, not everyone can con- receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. In other words, he says, you're right. But not everybody's going to get that. Not everybody's going to understand that. It's not for everyone. Now, there's two possibilities here. Either he's saying marriage is not for everyone, in which case the saying is here, uh, uh, well, let's just take be fruitful and multiply as an example, or he's saying the saying that just came out of your mouth, it's better not to marry. Either way, what Jesus says doubles down because what he says in verse 11, he says, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And then he makes some remarks about a eunuch. Okay. Now, for the most part, the word eunuch in, uh, in the ancient Near East uh, and the Roman Empire as a whole by this time uh, refers to those who are generally political captives of war, okay, uh, who are castrated, and initiated into the service of royalty. Okay. Now, to be clear here, because we don't always get this right in our modern way of thinking, uh, a eunuch is castrated not to keep him out of the king's harem or out of the royal family's uh, bedrooms, uh, but so that he has no children of his own. So that his entire security, remember, no social security, none of that, it's your children who take care of you when you're old. Your entire security as a eunuch is bound up in what? the one you serve, okay? And your legacy, everything you're striving for, everything you're going to leave behind is also bound up in the king, okay? So it's, it's an, the emphasis is on total devotion to my family instead of yours, okay? But here's the thing. Uh, because be fruitful and multiply is such a significant commandment, because marriage and children are such a uh, highlighted part of Jewish life, because all of the promises of the Old Testament were for your children and your children's children. Eunuchs were relatively despised and looked down upon across Israel. In fact, according to Deuteronomy, they weren't even allowed to gather in the tabernacle or the temple. Neither were those who had crushed testicles. Again, the emphasis in the ancient world on sexuality has to do with procreation. Okay? And so Jesus does something very surprising here. He takes a despised category of being and he elevates it as a model of discipleship. He takes a group of people who are, who are looked down upon in Israel and he says, you should consider being like them. Okay? And so notice he talks here about three different types of eunuchs. Verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. Okay? In other words, here he's using this word more broadly than the way I just defined it, okay? He's talking about people whose bodies physically, from birth, evidently exclude them from the possibility of God's design in Genesis, the possibility of marriage, okay? Included in this, in today's terminology, would be people who are dealing with intersex conditions, okay? 
um, people with ambiguous genitalia. But basically he says some people are going to be excluded from marriage because they are born a certain way, because their bodies are designed in a certain way. He's actually drawing this idea from Jewish culture who referred to people who were born like this as eunuchs of the sun. Okay? In other words, as soon as they were born and in the light of day it was clear life was going to be different for them. Okay? The second one, he says, there are eunuchs who are made so by men. That's the traditional category of eunuch. Okay? And what we're talking about here is, is oppression. What we're talking about here is someone who against their will uh, is cut off from the possibility of marriage. Uh, and then finally, he says, and this is the one that's the most surprising, he says there are those who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Okay? And so here, this is the only one that involves a choice. Born this way, this is just the hand you were dealt. Made this way by other people, that's the sins and oppressions of others. This last one are people who are going to choose a eunuch-like path, it says here, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but I want to nail this down very quickly. Sometimes, because in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul talks about singleness, he refers to singleness as a gift. Sometimes we think that what Paul means is some of us just don't need romance. Some of us are just so gifted in the spiritual gift sense that we have no desire for the close, intimate reunion uh, or no sexual desire or what have you, okay? And so it's been often as I've talked with people that they come to me and they're struggling with their singleness and they say, I don't have the gift of singleness. But I want you to notice here that Jesus uses language here that is also the language of a gift. Notice again what he says in verse 10. If such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry, the disciples say. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He agrees with Paul, or more importantly, Paul agrees with Jesus. He says there's a givenness for some people of a life that doesn't involve marriage. But what does that givenness look like to Jesus? Does it just look like people who have no desire? No, it's some people who were born a certain way. It's some people who are made this way by others, which means uh, anyone who the doors of marriage are shut against their own will. And some who just make the choice, okay? When Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is a gift, this is the context. He says to an entire church of Christians, I wish that all were single like me. That's Paul's wish. He thinks it's a better life. He says, I wish that all were single like me, but everyone has their own gift, okay? To one, one gift, to others, another. What is the contrasting gift that lays in the other pile for Paul there, it's marriage. God gives two good gifts, two uniquely good gifts, two completely different good gifts, marriage and singleness. That's why Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 7 and he says, the one who does not marry, in my opinion, he will do better. He says singleness is better. He says, in my opinion, the single person will be more happy. He says, I say these things not to limit you, but so that you may be free unto service of the Lord. Okay? He sees it as being a good gift, although it's a uniquely good gift. Now, some of you are just sitting there going, yeah, right. You don't know what it's like. And to be fair, uh, I'm approaching my 14th anniversary. It's been a long time since I was single. Okay? 
Uh, that is true. Uh, however, uh, well, we'll deal with that, but let me just, let me just say this, okay? Here's, here's what I think is the biggest problem. I think when we're single, we compare the low lights of singleness to the highlights of marriage. That's not fair. That's not an equal measurement. And what Paul, and we'll talk about this in weeks to come, encourages us to do is to recognize the challenges of marriage that often go unseen and untalked about, okay? Uh, and that means there are corresponding benefits of singleness that we don't weigh in the balances either, okay? But more importantly, I want you to notice this. Jesus, surprising for his day, completely novel for a Jewish teacher, elevates singleness and says that it is a fulfilling, God-ordained, possible way of discipleship. In fact, here, when he's talking about eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, again, he says we all need to be eunuch-like, even if we don't have the calling of eunuch. He makes the eunuch a model of discipleship, and he says this is a good way. Okay. Now, again, remember that this is not good singleness like our modern culture also thinks of good singleness. Many people in our world are single and see it as being beneficial because they are not held back by the permanence of a relationship, by the exclusivity of a relationship. I am unattached and free to go where I want and to sleep with who I want and to do what I want and to say what I want, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He both loosens up the possibility of singleness and tightens down his sexual ethic. Okay. When Jesus says single here, when he points to the eunuch, the implication is clearly one of lifelong, or as long as you're single, celibacy. Now, oftentimes when we uh, think about who Jesus is, we gather up a handful of verses on one side or a handful of verses on the other side and we neglect one half or the other. We do this especially when it comes to issues of sexuality. Okay. And so when you look at Jesus' ministry, actually his sexual ethic is more rigid and more demanding than his contemporaries. That's why his disciples are rubbing their head going, what? what? Except for adultery? That's the only thing that can get me out of this permanent relationship is if it's already broken through sexual immorality, right? They're struck by his conservativeness, okay? We see the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if anyone even lusts after a woman in his heart, he's already committed adultery. He says, even our own private life is not, uh, not free of moral responsibility for those who follow Jesus. He says even things, this would be included in this obviously, even things like pornography or the harem of your imagination are excluded from proper Christian discipleship, out of bounds. He has a more strict sexual ethic and yet we turn to other passages and he's surprisingly soft with sexual sinners. There's an occasion where he's eating in the house of Simon the Pharisee <coughs> and a woman who's very clearly a prostitute and known for it comes and begins to wash Jesus' feet with her tears. And Simon looking on thinks to himself, that's the evidence I needed. There's the proof that Jesus is not who he says he is. 
He's not a prophet. If he was a prophet, he'd know what type of woman this was and he'd keep his distance. Think of the woman uh, that Jesus has a conversation with in Samaria at the well. And he says, hey, before we talk any further, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have one. And he says, well, you've spoken truly because you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. She knows his entire, he knows her entire history of divorce and remarriage. And yet he's present there, especially in John chapter 8, where a woman is caught in the very act of adultery and thrown down in front of Jesus. Another line in the sand scenario. Okay, Jesus, what are you going to do now? He does nothing but draw on the sand and say, he who has committed no sin, let him cast the first stone. And all of the accusers drift away. And he says to the woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they've left. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. How do we reconcile the conservative sexual ethic of Jesus with his compassion towards those who haven't kept it? And what you have to remember is that Jesus, even as he's talking here, is not merely a teacher. He is, like we talked about this morning, a redeemer. And so that hard-line conservatism expresses the fact that we need a savior, that we can't keep the code, that what's wrong with human beings goes so deep that it's not something we can fix on our own that it's not just pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps or trying again or Jesus living out an example that we can finally understand what's required of us or him giving us instructions that if we can just keep, we can follow. The problem goes deeper than all of those things. And so Jesus says that sin begins, goes all the way down to the heart. Maybe you can keep your hands off other people, but can you keep your mind off them? Okay. But not only do we really need a redeemer, but Jesus also came to be one. And so he can say to the woman, neither do I condemn you. He can say to the woman who washes his feet, the prostitute, your sins are forgiven. He can say to the woman uh, who has, who's had five husbands and is now sleeping with a man who's not her husband, I am the Messiah. I am the redeemer. He's come to set those things right. Okay. Now, it's important that we understand that because, like I said, you will find people who are very rigid on the sexual lives of others, condemning uh, from the edges and drawing lines and don't seem to look like Jesus at all. And you will also find others who use Jesus to embrace living however you want and God being okay with it. But that's because they've forgotten that Jesus is a redeemer. We are both in need of redemption and God provided that in Jesus Christ. Now here's the thing. We still haven't come to understand here how singleness could be that great. Okay, and I want to make two clarifications. First, what we're talking about here is not loneliness, is not isolation. When Genesis uh, 2 records God looking at Adam all alone in the garden and says it is not good for man to be alone, that applies to all of us, everyone. But what Adam needs there primarily and ultimately is not a spouse, but a community, a society. Adam is given Eve for the fulfillment of be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Here's the thing. Every relationship in your life is sexual in its origin. Do you understand that? It is true that it's a good idea for you not to have sex with everybody, okay? But without sex, there'd be no anybody to have any type of relationship with. 
Sex is the cement of society. It defines who your parents are. It defines who your siblings are. It defines who your tribe is, who your clan is, who your nation is, what your race is. Sex is the cement of society. It defines all of those things. When God says to Adam, it's not good that man should be alone, humankinds were not made. Humankind was not made for isolation. We need community. And marriage serves that purpose. As we will see in the weeks to come, marriage will pass away. Why will there be no marriage in heaven? Those are Jesus' words. Why does he say it'll pass away? Because the product of marriage, children and nations and tribes and tongues that now worship Jesus, all of those persist, but the method of making them is no longer necessary. Okay. Now that's mind-altering for another reason, and it's because procreation is no longer something we think about when we think about marriage. Procreation is optional. It's a second question. But in its design, in the beginning, this whole idea moves towards community, moves towards civilization, moves towards society, moves towards the image of God, which only reflects who God is in relationship. Okay? So here's the point. The life of singleness should never be a life of isolation. And for those of you who are a part of our church and are not single, recognize that part of that burden lies on your shoulders. Okay. Another occasion, Jesus is speaking to a crowd and he's talking about the cost of following him like he often does. And he says, as many who leave husbands or wives or sons or daughters or brothers and sisters and come and follow me, I tell you that they will receive eternal life and in this life, a hundredfold of what they lost. He promises to people who are single to follow Jesus, that they will have in this life a hundred more brothers and sisters, a hundred more mothers and fathers, a hundred more homes. That's a blessing he promises to those who bear the cost of a single lifestyle. And church, we are supposed to be that blessing. Okay, and so it's not a call to isolation. In fact, side note, Speaking of modern technology, studio apartment, anyone? It's completely new in human history. Living alone is not a thing the world has ever attempted until the last century, and now we've made it the normative and primary practice, and we wonder why we struggle so much and feel so lonely. Okay? It's also, and this is important, not a call to forgo intimacy. The first way I think we can demonstrate this is recognizing that just because a relationship is sexual doesn't make it intimate. There's a really interesting book, one I'd encourage you to check out if you were so interested, called Premarital Sex in America. It's a fascinating read. It's by a couple of sociologists, and they do two things. Okay? First, they study the statistics of how relationships for single people in their 20s actually work. How long do they last? How quick do they sexualize? What leads to the breakup? Those types of questions. Second, they do interviews with the same people they polled and they ask them about their perception of how relationships work. And what the book is about is the incongruity, the disparity between those two things. And so it ends with a final chapter called Ten Myths of Modern Sexuality. It's a fascinating read. But there's a passage in there uh, where a psychologist who's writing for one of the big papers, I don't remember if it's the Atlantic or the New York Times, 
points out that most modern relationships sexualize so fast, it puts people in the awkward position where they know each other to be naked and physically in contact through sexuality, but don't know each other well enough to talk about contraception. Because it's kind of a private conversation. Okay. Intimacy and sexuality have overlap, but they're not the same thing. In fact, to give you another illustration, I can't think of a more intimate relationship than the one between a mother and a nursing child, where the mother is physically nourishing another human being with their body. And yet we would all agree that is not a sexual relationship, even though it's an intimate one, okay? Also, there are plenty of intimacies of other relationships, like that mother-child relationship, that should be part and parcel of every human life. You don't need a spouse, but you do need a family. You do need siblings. You do need friends. You do need neighbors. Okay? And all of those come with aspects of intimacy, and this is something we've neglected as a culture. Okay? We've lost the concept of friendship. We don't know how to be honest and open and support one another in the deep avenues of friendship. And one of the reasons is because our friendships often involve people we're attracted to, and so they sexualize very quickly. The thing is, this idea of exclusivity in marriage, which is so rigid in the Bible, actually frees you up for all the other forms of intimacy you need. Because they're no longer potentially sexual. And so you can have sisters who will never be lovers. You can have friends who will never be one-night stands. It protects the rest of relationships we need, and the truth is our culture, us included, are starving for intimacy. Even intimacy that involves physical contact, touch, which you're designed to need. And so we put all of the weight of all of our needs and intimacy on a single relationship, and it makes our life a comedy or a tragedy a triumph or tragic, whether we get it or not. The happily ever after, after of our culture is often, have you found the one? Now, I've always found this fascinating. Our culture presents this idea of the one, but what it leads to in the practice is a consecutive many. In fact, that same book that I mentioned, Premarital Sex in America, shows that statistically, the higher view you have of romance and marriage the more you believe that there's only one person out there, the quicker you are to walk away from a relationship. Because you take any difficulty or distance or problem as evidence. Well, that's not the one. I should keep looking. In contrast, the biblical view holds up the possibility of marrying anyone and then rigidly says, now that you're married, it's exclusive and permanent. Okay. You can pick your paradox. But we know, we've tasted, we've experienced where the paths we run every day as a culture lead. Madeline Selmas in her book, Authentic Sexuality, says this. She says, so many of us grew up in, uh, in sexually dysfunctional households. It's like we grew up in a garden and the walls are broken down and it's overgrown with weeds and the plants are so overgrown they don't actually bear buds, they don't bloom anymore. You know, the, everything is just busted, and we've forsaken that, she says, for the wilderness. And she says, honestly, the wilderness has its own form of beauty, but it's not a garden. And this is what she suggests. She says, it hasn't occurred to any of us that maybe we could just build a better garden. 
So it's not about isolation versus relationship. Even if you're here this morning, you go, I'm not married, I'm not in a relationship, I'm not looking because I'm independent and I don't need anyone else. You are horribly wrong. Okay. It's not about independence and it's not about forsaking or forgoing or not needing intimacy. Sex and marriage go hand in hand for one and only one reason. Because sex says with your body what marriage says with your whole life. It says, I belong completely and fully to you. Okay. And when we use sex to do anything besides that, it doesn't do what it's intended to do. It doesn't accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. In fact, one of the problems that oftentimes we struggle with as a modern culture is because sex is meant to bond and to loosen trust, uh, make us more likely to trust other people, to draw us together, uh, and we don't use it that way, pretty soon we're steeling ourselves against the natural response of our sexuality. We're building walls to keep us safe. So, that's not the biggest issue. The biggest issue has to do with Jesus himself. You might be bothered this morning, why would we listen to the advice of a man who's never known marriage, who's never known sexual intimacy? He's 33. He hasn't settled down. And we, we laugh at that, like, like the Steve Carell film. You know, we laugh at that today because he's still a virgin. But even in Jesus' day, he is an outlier because instead of getting married, he set off to be an itinerant preacher. He, his family is following him just like your aunt on Instagram going, when are you going to settle down? Okay. <laughs> But it's more important because of what we talked about in the catechism this morning. Jesus was single and yet fully human. And when we dehumanize the single or dehumanize singleness, when we say that if you don't have this romantic pairing, you are incomplete. When we pull a Jerry Maguire and we say what marriage is, is when you find the corresponding part that without you are lacking. When we elevate marriage and we make it the determining factor of a good life versus a bad life, we label Jesus as subhuman. And he can no longer be the savior that we need. Either Jesus lived a fully pleasing life to the Father, always doing the things that please him. Either Jesus was fully human and lived a single life, not without struggle, not without challenges, but with the uh, full encompassing reality of that singleness and it was enough, or he's not enough to save. What changes between the Old Testament and the New, what's different between Islam and Christianity, what sets apart Mormonism and Christianity is how we understand who Jesus was and what he accomplished. And that's what we're going to focus on next week and the following week because it is the hinge. It is where everything changes. It's why Paul can advise a completely different way of being, okay? And so this is the thing is, what I'm emphasizing this morning, what I'm pushing against is an idolatrous view of sexuality. that says if my sexuality is not expressed, okay, there's the Freudian view that says it's just building up in your body and you will express it in some sort of other aggressive way, like an incel, right? An involuntary celibate who justifies all the horror of their life because no one would sleep with them, okay? 
That's a Freudian understanding that says if we don't satisfy our sexuality, then we will just blow out the side and cause havoc somewhere else. We elevate sexuality to the point that we make it defining of a good life or a bad life. A single life is a secondary status life. We say this is, this is definitive. This is what life is about. But when we look at Jesus Christ, we have to go, no, actually, there's something more significant. There's something more important. In fact, we don't have time, but I would suggest to you that sex is designed. It's designed to point to that something more important. That's why there will be no, uh, no sexual relationships in marriage, because we'll leave behind the shadow and we'll have the substance. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He's talking to married couples, okay? And he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and lay your life down for her. He says, wives, submit to your husbands and respect them as the church does Christ. He takes this image of the relationship between Jesus and us, and he lays it par parallel to the relationship between a husband and a wife. Okay. What's interesting is, as Jesus does here, he says, because, and he goes back to Genesis chapter 2. Because he, uh, therefore a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife, and his two will become one flesh. And then Paul pulls one of the most surprising uh, rabbits out of the hat in all of the New Testament. He says, this is going to be profound. It's even a mystery. But this verse, this thing, all the way back in Genesis, it speaks about Christ and the church. He's not saying marriage is a good illustration for our relationship with Jesus. He's saying marriage was created to reflect, to image what God's making available in Jesus Christ. That means that uh, two things. One, that those who never have marriage on this earth who don't endure or engage with or enjoy the sign, they're not caught off from the same thing that it signifies. And it also means those who do enjoy the sign, who do engage with it, it will always fall short. It will never live up to what it's supposed to be. Because it's not really about your romantic relationship. It's not really about your spouse. It's about God's desiring to have a relationship of union with human beings. So much so that Jesus took on flesh. So much so that God became man. So much so that he set right what we made wrong in the fall, living the life we could not live, dying the death that we deserve, and then inviting us not just to start over and begin again, but adopting us as children, bringing us into the family, establishing a relationship of closeness and intimacy that will never be subject to division because nothing will separate us, Paul says, from the love of God. The permanence, the exclusivity, marriage by design points to what God was going to do for all humankind in Jesus Christ. And marriage points to that, but so does singleness. It says these longings are looking for something that will never be fully satisfied here, and I'm going to direct those longings where they belong. Marriage gives us the shape of the desired relationship God has, or has for his people. But singleness demonstrates the sufficiency of that relationship. Okay. I say often, if Jesus is alive, then everything you know is wrong. That's basically what we've talked about this morning. 
All I want you to understand this morning is that your view of singleness, you have inherited. You have not tested. You have not thought through. And most importantly, you haven't fit the cross of Jesus Christ in the center of it, which changes all things. And so where there are those of you who are afraid of singleness, you don't understand the goodness of the gospel. Where there are those of you who feel disqualified because of your singleness, even Jesus wasn't disqualified because of his singleness. For those of you who, uh, who maintain fierce boundaries and elevate the family, more on this next week, and it's us versus the world. The Christian view of family is porous. It involves brothers and sisters. It involves the breaking down of racial boundaries. It involves inviting people into your home. It involves the relationships of a church being primary over the ones of blood. And so I'm not just saying invite the single people over for dinner or employ them to babysit your kids. I'm saying make them your family. And here's the thing, guys. Everything I've said about singleness today is so harmful if the church is in the church. Because it calls them to a standard that nobody is called to bear because they try and bear it alone. Okay. Let's pray. Father, we find ourselves in an interesting place because we believe that you designed marriage and that it's part of the great, it is good, of the story of creation. But we also find ourselves ensnared in all of these wrong definitions of what makes marriage so good, of elevating it to a place that it doesn't belong, of seeking to hang our entire lives on a single relationship, and whether it is or isn't whether it's good or bad, whether we've arrived or whether we haven't. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to filter through uh, the incongruencies there, the places where we've adapted uh, things that aren't true and where we're trusting in marriage or a romantic relationship or sexual fulfillment to do what it was never designed to do. And Lord, there's no place in scripture where you talk about a permanent vow of celibacy. As much as because of our Catholic heritage, we may think of that. Uh, you, you call everyone to live as they're called. And so if you're single, live as single. If you're married, live as married. And even Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, it's not a sin to get married. This is not, we've gotten it all wrong. They're both good in different ways. I just pray, God, that you would give us open hands that you would give us open hearts to this and that as so many of our neighbors and our city is single, that we would be able to provide for them what they're looking for in Jesus Christ and in our church. I pray, Lord, that we'd be a church where there really is a practical and reasonable option presented to people, a life of singleness, a life of marriage, it's all good. We pray this in your name. Amen.